it's not, the page number is not there. It's Colossians chapter 2, verse 20 from to 3, verse 11. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belonged to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with the things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations, indeed, have an appearance of wisdom, with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Amen. Please take a seat. Um, folks, that page number, which we weren't able to give you a moment ago, uh, for the Colossians passage, 1,184 uh, in those Bibles there in the pew. I was chatting to somebody in the congregation over the last couple of weeks who said they were learning by heart uh, the first 17 verses of Colossians 3. So I approached them just about five minutes before our service started and asked them if they wanted to come up and speak it as our Bible reading. Uh, they said, not just today, but um, maybe sometime soon. We'll, we'll see here some, some of the stuff here. Um, these early verses of Colossians 3, some of the most beautiful and powerful ideas in the whole of Scripture. So let's ask God's help to, to really hear what He's saying and uh, really own it and maybe learn even to live out of it. Lord, Your Word's life-changing. We say that, but our lives are slow to change. So Lord, show us again today the beautiful gospel of Jesus Christ and be patient with us. Come again to us by your Spirit and, and work something very, very new and beautiful in us. Amen. So this morning we cross the halfway line in Colossians. Um, we're, it's a four-chapter 
short letter. We're heading into chapter 3. Where have we got to so far? Well, in chapters 1 and 2, we've seen uh, that Paul's been encouraging these young Christians in a church in Colossae, modern-day Turkey. He's been telling them that if they're in Jesus Christ, they are enough. He's told them that they don't need to go back to their pagan Greco-Roman gods. Uh, He's told them, chapter 2, verse 17, how Jesus has disarmed the powers and authorities. He's made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. There's not a power or authority in the universe that Jesus Christ hasn't triumphed over. We don't need to come under the Jewish law. Uh, Paul tells them, chapter 2, verse 14, he tells them that Jesus has fulfilled the law. He's canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it upon the cross. So the cross of Jesus Christ has done two things. It's fulfilled the law and its requirements, but it's also defeated the powers. It's done everything that's needed to make us right with God. In Christ, we are enough. That's what Paul has been teaching us so far in this letter. If it's true to say that Jesus' death is, is strong enough, is, is enough to, to bring us out of our slavery to religious legalism, to, to bust us out of the matrix of our, our culture's uh, conventions and expectations, if his death can do all that, then his resurrection this resurrection life which we're offered in Jesus Christ becomes the basis and gives us the power to live the new life that we've been called to. That's what Paul's going to talk about in the second half of this letter, the resurrection life. Look very quickly at the headings there in the NIV. They're they're made up, by the way. They're not part of any biblical text. Whoever translates and publishes a Bible gets to, to choose their own headings, but they give us some idea of where Paul's going. Rules for holy living, rules for Christian households, and then in chapter 4, the rather vague catch-all further instructions. Maybe just, uh, I'll tell you where I think we're going to go these last few weeks in the series. We're going to see Paul giving guidance for Christians living the Christian life, first in the church, then in their homes, then in our workplaces, and then in the world. So that's where we're heading in the the last few weeks of our series in Colossians. With that in mind, let's get stuck into this morning's text. You might be a wee bit disappointed with the approach Paul takes here. Uh, I've said he's going he's gonna to tell us in the most dynamic terms imaginable how to live the life of Jesus Christ. Look what he says, verse 2. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. Notice verse 1 as well. Set your hearts on things above. Because of the way people talked about hearts and minds in that culture, there's not really a whole lot of difference between what he means by by heart and mind. And actually, come to think of it, we still talk about a a hearts and minds exercise. We understand that if you want to grab a person, you've got to grab their their intellect, but also their their volitional life, their, their will. Hearts and minds, Paul's talking about. He says, put them on things above. Be heavenly minded. And it's at that point 
that I've suggested, we might be a wee bit disappointed. Uh, sort of thinking, Paul, is that the best you can come up with? The way to live for Jesus is to be heavenly minded. Because if you think about it for a second, being heavenly minded isn't something that we think of positively in general. When we hear that phrase, we, we might think of some person we know who, who, who's very intensely uh, religious but doesn't seem to know how to live their way through everyday life very well. Uh, what is it you think of when you hear that phrase about a person being heavenly minded? Too heavenly minded to be too heavenly minded to be any earthly use? Yeah? So our culture, when it thinks about heavenly minded, doesn't doesn't think of that as being a good thing, something that we should aspire to. Whatever Paul's talking about here, it's incredible, and it's hugely appealing. Let me show you why. Verse, verses 5, uh, this, this, he's talking here about a person of great, uh, great purity, of great power, of great integrity, and of virtue, the kind of person that you and I only rarely get to meet. Look at verse 5. After telling the Colossians that they're to be heavenly-minded, he tells them to put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. He lists some sins. Most of them have to do with lust or greed of some sort, sins that he wants them to kill off. In verse 8, he introduces a, a different metaphor. Rather than sins that are like enemies that need to be killed off, these are like squatters that need to be evicted, bad tenants inhabiting our lives, Look at them, anger, rage, malice, slander, and so on. Have you ever tried to kill the enemies listed here? Have you ever tried to evict those uh, tenants, those vices from your life? If you have, you'll know how hard it is. Actually, the only people who know are the people who have tried. When we don't resist sin in our lives, we don't notice it. It's when we wish it gone that we realize how much of a grip it can have on us. These enemies, they dominate us. These tenants, they have been unwanted squatters in our lives for years and decades. Paul, if you're telling us something that can help us if this heavenly mindedness can help us with, with this kind of thing that you're inviting us to, these, this entrenched sinfulness in our lives, then, then please tell us. We're all ears. What do we do? What, what is this heavenly mindedness you're talking about? This morning, as we come to this passage, we're going to try and answer three questions. Why we need it, heavenly mindedness, what it is, and how it works. The why, the what, and the how. So first of all, why do we need it? Let me come at this sideways for a moment. So in all of the old myths, uh, the, the old legends, the, the great, great stories and epic adventures of our culture, and actually in, in a lot of the modern ones too, the Marvel movies or the, the sci-fis that are being made these days, there's a similar line or trajectory that's followed. The heroes start out as ordinary people, people very much like you or I. 
uh, and they live in an ordinary place. And then something happens that brings them from their ordinary life into an extraordinary life. Sometimes it's time travel. So you, you go back into some time in the past when people did heroic deeds, or you go forward into uh, some dystopian future, or you, you travel to another planet. Uh, that's why we have sci-fi, I think, to take us out of our world to other places. Or else you just find some sort of a portal that brings you in, in, to an entirely different dimension altogether. Uh, I, hope, I hope you're getting a picture of the, the kind of thing I'm talking about here. And one thing that these places that we go to have in common is that they're not ordinary. They're not gray and everyday. They're not like the life that you and I are going to wake up to tomorrow morning. They're extraordinary. They're larger than life kind of places. There are good kings and good queens. There are terrible heroes and villains in these places. There are huge conflicts and great, great battles. And in all the great stories, there's always redemption. Victory is always snatched somehow out of the jaws of defeat in the end. When those heroes return one day to their own world or to their own dimension, there's something different about them. They're never quite the same again. They're larger than life now. They have been somewhere and they've seen something and they've taken part in the great adventures and it, it's, it's changed them, it's made them larger than life. They now move through their ordinary everyday life with a freedom and with a power that they've never had before. Why is that? Why is it that it works like that? Well, well here's why. It's because they live in their everyday ordinary life now, always remembering what they saw, what they participated in in that other world. They've seen the other world, the beyond world, the ultimate world, and it makes a real difference to how they live Monday to Saturday. So, for example, if they come up against evil or danger, and and there are real evils and real dangers in our lives. It doesn't faze them. Not the way it once did. It's still difficult, but it doesn't shake them to their core. And why is that? It's because they have seen the greater evils. It's because they've faced far, far greater dangers. They've seen them, they've faced them, and they've seen them stood down. So why would they be scared about this? Or, or another thing, they're, they're not just courageous, they're not just brave, these people who've been to the other world. In their ordinary world, they have an extraordinary amount of self-control. Why is that? They're, they're, they've got far more goodness, far, they're far more honest and brave and virtuous than people generally are. It's because in the other world they they encountered the, the beautiful kings and queens. They encountered the heroes who were beautiful beyond compare. And they, they were wise and they were honest and they were virtuous. The, the very memory of their faces is still with them every day. 
One more thing about these, these heroes, these people who've been to the other world and have come back. They're humble and they live sacrificially. Why is that? Well, it's because in these adventures that we're talking about, these great stories, there's always somebody who died to save them. It's not a, not a good story. It wouldn't be a good story if there wasn't somebody who died to save them. All the good stories have that element in common. And it's the memory of what has been done for them that, that changes these people, that makes them very noble, very unselfish, that makes them sacrificial with those around them. This is why the heroes who've been to that other world come back and live different lives in this world. This is why they move through life with such freedom and power. They've been to the other world and they've seen that greater reality. They've seen the great fire quenched. So this fire here, it's going to be all right. They've seen the great diseases cured. So whatever illness they're facing, they have a bigger context for it. They've seen the great battles fought and won. So they're, they're just more able for the battles that confront them here. Nothing phases them the way it used to. Folks, I think you know by now what I'm talking about. Paul says this is how Christian people can and should live. As if we have died and gone to another world and come back. I love how Tim Keller talks about this in a, in a sermon that's inspired much of what I'm sharing today. He says, Christian people who live with their minds on the great things, whose minds have been captured by the one who is beautiful beyond compare. He says, if only we can see the other world, only if we can see the other world can we live with greatness in this world. That's what Colossians 3, the early verses, are all about. Seeing the other world so that we can live with greatness in this world. So if Paul's right, those who are the most heavenly minded become the most earthly use. Just before I race on, let me pause here. Do you have any sense, even the smallest sense, of discovering for yourself the freedom and the power that we're talking about here. Of being able to kill off or diminish the place of the lusts and idolatries of verse 5, the vices, the tenants in our heart in verse 8. Do you have any sense of being able to demonstrate greater courage in adversity, humility, and virtue in all of your circumstances? You will if you learn to focus on the, the heavenly things. You will to the degree that you learn to make Jesus, his death and his resurrection, the focus of your life. So there we are. What is it? Or why do we need it? Heavenly mindedness. We've seen why we need it. What is it exactly? What does it mean to set your mind on heavenly things? 
I, I'm going to guess that if I read that without anything else to guide me, I'd think Paul's inviting me to think about heaven. He's inviting me to think about the, the great parties, the great food, the great music, the great beer, everything that's going to be great in heaven. But I don't think, those are, those are all great things and well worth dwelling on. But that's not, I don't think, what Paul's getting at here. Why don't we let Paul tell us what he means? Look again at verse 1. Since then you've been raised with Christ. Wait a minute. What are you talking about, Paul? When were we raised with Christ? But there's more. Look look at verse 3. He says, For you died, past tense. You died, past tense. You've been raised. What are you talking about, Paul? Paul's talking here about the greatest truth that ever there was. The greatest thing that I get to, it's, he's going right to the heart of the Christian gospel here. He's telling us that when a person trusts in Jesus Christ, they are in Christ. The, the old theologians used to talk about this. They had a, a, a way of talking about this. They called this union with Christ. That's not really a biblical phrase, but it is a, it's a big idea that gathers up a lot of the Bible's teaching. It's the most beautiful thing you'll ever hear. The essence of being a Christian, you see, isn't uh, that I'm a person who's trying to be like Jesus. I'm emulating Jesus. It's not that I'm a person who's listening to Jesus, that I'm a person who's trying to obey Jesus. No, no. It's that I'm in Christ. That's the biggest and the main thing about anyone who's a Christian. What does it mean? Well, Paul and a number of the New Testament writers show us that for every Christian, right? I'm going to say this a couple of times, everything that's actually true of Jesus Christ is legally true of us. Whenever God looks at us, he sees Jesus Christ. Everything that's true of Jesus has become true of us. Let's try this out for a second. You've died, Paul says. That's why we reached back into chapter 2 and started to read there at verse 20. He says back there, you've died. It means that God treats you now as if you had gone to the cross and died for your sins in torment there. As if the punishment that was yours, that sat on you for your sin, as if it has been paid for. That's how God treats you. He treats you as if you died. Why? Because you did. How? Because Jesus did. And you're in Christ. You've died. Do you see it? Folks, as the essence of sin is to substitute ourselves for God, to to go to the places where only God deserves to be. So the essence of the salvation that God offers us is that he substitutes himself for us and goes to the places where only we deserve to be, the cross of Jesus Christ. It's quite breathtaking. But here's the thing. It's done. 
past tense. You died. And if you trust Jesus Christ, you're not going to die like that ever again. You died. But look at what he says. Not only that, not only you died, but you were raised. Look, look again at verse 1. See where Paul says there, Christ is seated at the right hand of God. What does that mean? It's not, not a phrase that would mean a whole lot to us. It's an old idea. But whenever a king or a queen in the old days said to you, come and sit at my right hand, we're saying two things to you. They were saying, come and be with me. Come and be my friend. Come and share intimacy, friendship with me. But they were saying another thing. Whenever they say, come and be with me at my right hand, they're saying, come and have honor beside me. You only get to be at my right hand when I choose to honor you and put you there. Folks, we have been raised. We have been seated with Jesus Christ at the right hand of our Father God in heaven. Do you know what this means? It means that the Father treats you as if you'd lived the same beautiful, perfect life that Jesus did. Let that sink in a second. That's what he sees. The Jesus life in you. As if you had died the same death that Jesus has died. As if you're every bit as beautiful and as holy as Jesus is. That's what the Father sees in you. You're dead. You're raised. You're seated. Everything true of Jesus, true of you. Union with Christ. You see what I mean? It's beautiful. Folks, some people here are, are listening to me. Well, I'm going to guess all of us are struggling to, to take this on board and to receive it. But some people here this morning are listening to this from the outside. And what I mean by that is that um, you hear us, you, you hear Paul talking about being in Christ. You hear me explaining a bit about union with Christ. And you know you're not there. You're not in Christ. Not yet. You're listening to this and you're thinking... I don't quite get it, but, but somehow that sounds amazing. I, 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 wish, I, I wish that that could be true, but it, it's clearly, clearly too good to be true. Folks, actually, that, that strikes me as probably the only legitimate reason that I've ever heard of a, why a person couldn't commit themselves to Jesus Christ. It's because they believe it's too good to be true. They can't believe that anything as good as this is on offer to them. That, that's a problem. That is a real problem. I know one or two people like this. I'm talking to one or two people like this at the moment about this kind of thing. Their problem is not, they're not saying to me, oh, I, I don't need God, I'm not a sinner, I don't need his, I don't need the work of Jesus on the cross, I, I don't need, they, they don't know that it's for them yet. 
Maybe you're there today. Try, try to believe it. Open your heart to the, the goodness, to the wonder of what God offers you in Jesus Christ. So we've talked here about why we need this. Um, sorry, just before I come to that, when Paul, when Paul talks about setting our hearts and things above, what is it he actually means? He's not asking us to think about the parties and the food uh, and the music that's going on in heaven. He's asking us to remember that our life is there. Remember that your life's in heaven. Maybe one of Paul's other brilliant union with Christ verses can help. Galatians chapter 2 verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So we're talking here this morning about setting our minds on things above. We've seen why we need it. We've seen what it is. Lastly, for a couple of minutes, how do you do it? How do you, how do, you do this? Very quickly, notice that this practice of putting our minds on things above, for Paul, it has a negative and a positive aspect to it. First of all, the negative aspect, verse 2. He's inviting the Colossians to set their minds on things above. He says, not on earthly things. Now, folks, if you've been here with me for any length of time, you'll have heard me banging on for years about the importance of recognizing the idolatries in our culture, recognizing the idolatries in our lives, and not allowing them to keep us from Jesus Christ. Paul's saying here, you can't set your mind up there if your mind's full of this here. It doesn't work. Verse 4, he says, when Christ, who is your life, appears. Paul's saying for a Christian that Christ is our life. So what does it mean then to set our mind on earthly things, well, it probably means then to, to miss making Christ our life, to allow other things other than Jesus Christ to become and to be our life. How, how would we know if we're doing that? Here's an easy way to see when earthly things are becoming your life. It's like a, a diagnostic question. What are the things or people or intangibles that if somebody took them away from me or I can't have them for some reason, I feel angry or despondent and it makes me feel like life's no longer worth living? What are those things when I can't have them, I get angry and despondent? I've been learning the last few years about the role of anger to teach us about what's going on in our hearts. We get angry about the things that we've set our heart on if we're not allowed to have them. 
So your anger might just be one of the most important indicators available to you today to know what's going on in your heart. What's making you angry today? There's every possibility that it's showing you that something in your life other than Christ has become your life. So the first step's a negative one to identify those things that, are, that have a hold on us. And our anger can help us to do that. Once we've spotted these dangers, there's a thing that we can do to kill them dead so that we can get on with this positive work of setting our minds on things above. Here's what we do. Next time we're experiencing that negative emotion, that anger or that, that overblown fear, don't get me wrong, folks, there, there's room for natural frustrations in life. Uh, there's room to, to be a little tentative about things. But there's not room for throwing our toys out of the pram in rages of anger. And there's not room in the, the life of a Christian for living with unshackled fear dominating us. When that's happening, we know something's wrong. What do we do when we sense that these things are happening? We need to learn to, to say to ourselves, something here has become my life. We need to look for it, search it out, identify it, and then lock onto it and look it straight in the eye and say to that thing, you are not my life. I, I like you. You're important to me. If I'm honest, I'd love to have you in my life. But you're not my life. Jesus Christ and my identity in him, that is my life. Folks, we've been talking here today about this, this journey Paul wants to take us on, where he wants to take us, teach us about the new life that we have in Jesus Christ. Today he's taken us right to the foundation of it. He wants us to be heavenly minded. Next time you're confronted with that idea and you, you're thinking too heavenly minded to be of any earthly use, say to yourself, don't believe it properly understood, the way Paul talks about it in Colossians 3, we're seeing now that the most heavenly-minded people are the ones who are the most earthly use. Because they have seen the other world, that's why they can live with greatness in this world. The heavenly-minded in the end are the ones who live through this life with the freedom and the power. So then, since you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is hidden now with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory.